0: Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know, it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Well, good afternoon, everyone. My name is uh, Chris Cha, and i uh, one of the pastors here um, on staff, and also, um, as I've sh- shared with you... and weeks past also have been in the process of of planning a church and uh, it's been uh, such a good process being here at Cornerstone um, and walking through that process the past two years and just wanted to share with you that on uh, January 11th we are going to be hosting a launch service here um, on January 11th and uh, the families that are um, you know have been called together in this church plan are going to be launched out from this church and um yeah, yeah amen <laughs> there's gonna be um you know just an- another church and we need um we need more we need as many churches planted as possible because i mean that is the vehicle and we're not talking about just religious institutions we're talking about people of god being redeemed by god filled with the spirit of god sent on the mission of god and those are the churches we need planted and um i'm so thankful that cornerstone believes in that um and uh you know i'm just thankful that uh, we also have people that believe in that. So please join us on January 11th. Well, we are going to wrap up our series today in God being faithful to his promises. And I don't know about you, but this, um, this series has been so good for my own soul um, because I don't know if you guys have noticed the theme. Every sermon, <laughs> every single one has been on Jesus. And... Um, I don't know about you guys, but I, I constantly need Jesus preach. whether I'm preaching Jesus to myself or whether I'm listening to someone else preach Jesus, like that is what builds my soul up. It reminds me of who I am. It reminds me of why I'm here on this planet. It reminds me of why God has placed me in, you know, just, it just gives me, it gives me grand perspective. And I just pray that this, this series has been good for you as well, that God is faithful to his promises, and it's all centered on the person and work of Jesus. And today we end our series, and um, we're going to end it with Jesus as well. So is that all right with everyone? Okay, good, all right. That's where we're going to end today. Um, but before we dive into that, just open confession, I have um, many unfinished things that I have left in my life, from books to to-do lists to projects and at times, like when, you, when I look at these lists, it, it can be overwhelming. And I don't know about you, but there have been even times in my life that, that these, these things left unfinished um, almost have left me with a sense of hopelessness because there's so much to do and so little time. And sometimes it's hard to even see the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel. And all because there's so many unfinished things in my life. But here's where Jesus is different. Jesus is in the business of finishing things. Everything that Jesus starts, he finishes. And what, we, what we're going to be talking about today is the work that Jesus begins in us. And this is where we're going to end, that God is faithful to complete all that he starts in our lives. He is going to bring it to full completion. And that is a promise. In Philippians 1.6, Paul writes, and I'm sure of this, that He, speaking of Jesus, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In some of your other translations, you'll see the word perfection. And what is the, <clears throat> what is the good work that He's bringing to completion at the day of Jesus Christ? The same author who wrote this letter to the believers in, in Philippi also wrote, the letter of Romans to the believers in Rome. And in Romans eight twenty nine, Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, who is Jesus, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is, this is the plan that he is going to bring to completion in all of those that place their trust in Jesus. He is molding and conforming us to the image of his Son. And remember, a couple of weeks ago, just preaching on that concept of image and glory. God's grand master plan for the universe is that he would fill this earth with people that bared his image so that his glory, which is going to be shown through his people that have been redeemed by him, would fill this earth. And together, as this redeemed community lives in community together, they'll join God on his mission in bringing glory back to God. So the question is, since God is faithful to his promise, uh, a question that I would, that, that I often have when reading the scriptures is, well, God, you know, what, what part do I play? For example, uh, in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, you have kind of an in- interesting structure of, a, of the sentence in terms of in Jesus' statement. He, he tells the disciples that all power... all authority has been given to him. All power and authority on earth and heaven have been given to him. He's stating a declared fact like, everything's been given to me. And in light of that, I want you now to therefore go make disciples of all nations by, of course, going, baptizing, and teaching. And then at the end, he says, surely I'm with you to the end of the age. And it's interesting that Jesus is declaring what's going to happen I mean, the earth is going to be filled with disciple makers that are going to make disciples, that are going to make disciples because all power and authority have been given to him. And he gives us a promise that's, that says, surely I'm with you always to the end of the age, which is directly attached to the making of disciples, being on mission. And then it's given that task to the people of, now you are to go forward and make disciples. So the topic that we want to talk about today is Yes, the Scriptures does speak a lot about obedience, so much so that Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. But there is such a thing as what's called grace-based or gospel-centered obedience versus works-based obedience. And we're going to be looking at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, because I feel here in this passage that Paul really helps us make sense of the world we live in and how the grace of Jesus propels us and empowers us to live a life on mission in the world we live in, making it all about Jesus. Before we read Titus, um, just to give you a recap in Titus 1, 1-4... We see the heart of Paul, we see the purpose of him writing this letter to Titus. Not only does he state his purpose in verse five, but he also wants to back up Titus by confirming his leadership as, as Titus, he's sent Titus to to go back or to go to the island of Crete in which there have there, there are already believers there. And this is the Apostle Paul, a man who's been commissioned by God and was able to see the resurrected Jesus Christ. And then you see in Titus 1, verses 5 through 16, again, that Paul had sent Titus to Crete, which is south of of mainland Greece. And for a purpose, he had sent him there to put things into order. And what he had to put things in order, it was there, there was no leadership in these churches. There was a lack of leadership, should I say. And he wanted... Titus to appoint godly men as elders and these elders were to teach the word of God. They were to combat false teaching and they are to be watchful shepherds and Paul is telling Titus this has to happen top down from the leadership down beginning with the leadership and into the congregation. And hence that's why he starts with Titus. He starts with the qualification of elders. He addresses false teachers and then in chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 he's addressing the the, 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 the the believers, the the people in the congregation. And hence, you see in verses 1 through 10, you see these uh, uh, general titles given to people, groups of people, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and people in the workforce. And he instructs them, this is how you are to live in the culture and in the city that God has placed you in as a gospel witness. And when you read some of the things that Paul is urging the church to do there, those are some God-sized things that need to be accomplished. They live in a culture that is seemingly rejecting God at, at every corner and every turn. There's already some dysfunction in the church already. And these are God-sized tasks, and I'm sure that these men and women of the church in Crete were asking, how are we as older men, older women, and younger men, and younger women, and slaves to live out our lives as faithful followers of Jesus? This is God-sized. How are we as sinners going to make an impact on the island of Crete? How is this going to be done? And what you're going to see is as we look at verses 11 through 14... Everything that Paul instructs, every instruction he gives to Titus and to uh, him as an elder and to the leaders he establishes and to all these clusters of people are all grounded in the grace of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. We're going to read Titus chapter 2 now, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people But it's interesting because it's here in this verse that Paul gives us, how, he gives us a teaching on how the grace of God empowers all of life. But I think for, for, many, for many of us, <clears throat> when we read Titus 2, 11 through 14, it's almost as if we leave verse 12 out, which mentions that the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in what age? In what age? In the present age. Isn't that interesting that the Apostle Paul says, right in the here and now, this is what the grace of God does in our lives. And when you look at the gospel and you look at the grand story of the gospel and the grand purpose of the gospel, you see a then, now, then reality. And we understand clearly that, of course, we, we look to our past and we see what the significance of the cross, the person and work of Jesus, and we understand that it's solely in Christ that our sins are forgiven. And we understand that it's through Jesus that we've been delivered from the penalty of sin, that no longer we're, are we under condemnation, under the wrath of God, that Jesus, through Jesus, He's given us His right standing. We understand that part, and we understand that our sins are forgiven. And we also understand you know, the, the future then reality, that there is going to be a day in which Christ comes back and he's going to make all things you and we're going to spend the rest of our lives with him. And I think the challenge that we have is, is in between the then and then is the now. And how does the gospel really bear on our lives? How does, it, how, how does the rubber you know, meet the road? How does it impact how we live literally today? And theologians call this... Uh, um, this kind of way of thinking where we don't understand the here and now, they call it the gospel gap. And it's here that Paul is going to address how the gospel applies to every dimension of our lives and of time in the life of believer. So verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Clearly we see that the gospel, through Jesus Christ, that we are saved from the penalty of sin. And right off the bat, Paul starts out with this significant statement that the grace of God has appeared. And if you were to summarize this passage in one word, it would be grace. Here in Titus 2, 11 through 14, Paul condenses the eternal plan of God in Christ in one word for grace. It is grace, the grace of God, his unmerited favor towards wicked, unworthy sinners by which he delivers them from condemnation and death. And it's more than a divine attribute. It's a divine person, Jesus Christ. John MacArthur, who's a pastor and theologian, he explains, he says, Jesus Christ not only was God incarnate, God in the flesh, but he was grace incarnate. He himself personifies and expresses the grace of God, the sovereign, eternal, and unmerited divine gift of him who has appeared bringing salvation to all men, to all men. So we see here that Jesus clearly personified grace. And we see that in the Gospels. One of the things that if you read the Gospels and you study the Gospels, you'll see that clearly Jesus personified, or that grace personified Jesus. In all of his interactions with people of high standing, low standing, middle standing, grace is what filled Jesus' life and ministry so much so that the parable of the prodigal son, so often we focus on the younger son, the son that has, you know, squandered his father's wealth and run off to a distant country. And, and we're like, man, the, 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 this parable is about him. But we forget that half the rest, the half of the parable is about the older brother. And even though Jesus' harshest words were towards uh, self-righteous Pharisees, he also had grace and love for the Pharisees. Because if you remember the, 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 the parable, the story ends with the father going out to entreat the older brother who represents the self-righteous Pharisees. And we don't know the ending of the story. All we know is the father invited him into the party. It was an open invitation to the Pharisees that so you guys are welcome to. And grace is clearly a word that, that, that described the ministry of Jesus. This phrase, has appeared, carries the meaning of something coming to light, especially, especially that, that something becoming manifest in a way that wasn't previously seen. How so? Because Jesus, the person of Jesus, brought God's saving purpose out of the shadows and into full light, into the spotlight. For example, um, you and I can look back at our lives and see that many different things have happened, Correct. Many highs and many lows. And as I look at my own life, I can't help but see that God had a plan for everything. And of course, at the time, I didn't clearly understand it, nor was I thinking that God had a plan or he knew what he was doing. And it wasn't until later on that those purposes were brought to light. They were made known to me. And I'm sure many of you have had that experience as well. And that's this concept of thought that now they're being brought to light. And of course, God's grace isn't solely about man's need. It's also about His eternal plan from the very beginning. Take some time this week to read Ephesians chapter 1, and you'll see it was always God's grand redemptive plan in Jesus Christ. And of course, He mentions the salvation of all people and this is not to say that every person will be saved, but that salvation, the point is, salvation is available to all people now, not just Jews, but Gentiles. Anyone in any nation, in any language, can be saved through the person and work of Jesus. And that is good news, amen? Of course, grace is twofold here. Paul is telling us that it is for forgiveness, bringing salvation to all people, delivering them, rescuing them from the bondage of, of sin. But it's also for empowerment. Did you catch that? That it's the same grace that trains the believer to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Don't you love that the New Testament writers, I mean, no matter at what stage they were writing, whether they had just met the Lord or whether they were at the end of their life, it was always the same message. Peter, at the end of his life, at the end of his last book, say, may you continue to grow in the knowledge and in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was never, hey guys, you've outgrown Jesus now and you've graduated to level two and you can move forward and, and depend on yourself and depend on works. As these men matured in the faith, it was, it was more of a recognition and their need of Jesus. And it's here that you and I need to be reminded that the gospel is not just then and then, it's right now. And it's this empowerment that the grace of Jesus gives us. Verse 12, Paul writes, this grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So we see in verse 11 that Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin, and it's here we see that Jesus is saving us from the power of sin in this present age. The difference between justification and sanctification is that justification is an event. Sanctification is a process. Jesus, God through His Son, Jesus, declares us righteous. And not only in this miraculous, what's called the divine exchange, that when someone placed their trust in Jesus, there is this, there is this, uh, this double exchange, where by placing our trust in Jesus, we, our sin is literally placed upon Him. And He, of course, literally dies in our place and takes the penalty that we deserve, but something else happens. So not only does God look at us and say, "Pardoned, not guilty." The beautiful thing about the divine exchange, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, is that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So not only does, does God the Father through Jesus look at us and say, not guilty, parted, he looks at us and he says righteous because Jesus' righteousness has literally been credited to us. It's a fancy theological phrase called imputed righteousness, and that word imputed means ascribed or credited your account. And a great way to, to look at that is that if you picture not as modern day marriage when people sign prenuptial agreements, but if you look at the biblical sense of, of, of marriage and you, and you look at the, the fact that the biblical writers talk about our relationship with Christ as a marriage, it's like this, this, this perfect king who takes, on, um, who takes on this peasant bride and sinful bride, which, which we are. And because of this union, everything great, all the benefits of being married to this king are, are credited to, this, to the bride's account. And all the junk and baggage and everything are credited to the king's account. And there's this divine, beautiful exchange. But now it's here in this, in this time and age, in this present age, that Jesus the realities of the kingdom are coming upon our life, and right now we can begin to experience the power over sin. He is currently saving us from the power of sin. Hebrews two fourteen through 15 captures this challenge. The writer of Hebrews says, "...since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he," talking about Jesus himself, "...likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil." And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus is saving us from the power of sin. And what does grace do? What does the grace of Jesus do in our lives? It trains. That word trains literally means teaches, instructs, and disciplines. Now that I've been saved, I've been redeemed. The same saving grace that was able to reverse my verdict in the court of law in the heavenly realm is now able to purify me and empower me to live a life pleasing to the Lord. That same saving grace will empower me to say no to the things that displease God and yes to the things that please Him. And what does this verse imply? What is it that Paul is referring to that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? And what are we to focus on that will Empower us to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age? It's the Sunday school answer, brothers and sisters. Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. The late Dallas Willard, in his book, The Great Omission, he writes this. He says, Grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. And he was commenting on this passage. and It's meant for the believer's empowerment. We as believers have the ability now to live lives pleasing to him because Christ lives in us. And we are no longer enslaved to the things that hold us in bondage. Verse 13 Paul writes, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's so not only has Jesus saved us from the penalty of sin, he's saving us from the power of sin. He will one day save us from the presence of sin. Brothers and sisters, there's going to be a day when Jesus delivers us from sin and death. Revelation talks about this. Revelation in this vision that, that God had given John, the last two things that are thrown into the lake of fire are sin and death. There will be no more rejection of God's reign and rule in our lives. And when Jesus returns, it will be a time of complete restoration. It's going to be literally a time when Jesus makes all things new. And it is a future reality. 1 John 3.2, John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but what we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There's going to be that day coming. And that phrase that Paul uses for waiting for carries the meaning not only of this longing, this deep longing and desire, but it's also this waiting um, with this eagerness and certainty of expectation. It's like this absolute faith and assurance that God is going to be faithful to his promise of coming back and making all things new. Hope. That word hope includes the connotation of confident certainty. And the phrase blessed is it is a happy and joyful thing. And it's not mere wishful thinking that Paul is talking about or speaking about. He's saying, I'm so sure of this because God is faithful to his promises. He's going to finish Everything he started, everything he said he's going to do from the prophets of the old are being fulfilled and are going to be fulfilled. Every single one. And what Paul is certain about is that the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the grace of God personified. We clearly see that in his first coming, his first advent. But Jesus is also the glory of God personified. And we're going to see that in completion when he returns. Because when Jesus returns, another amazing thing, I don't know how this is going to happen. Many people have theorized. But when Jesus returns, every knee is going to bow. And every tongue will confess. I don't know how that's going to happen, but it's going to happen. It's going to be glorious, all right? And Revelation 19 speaks of this coming, second coming of Jesus, that he's going to be a rider on a white horse, and that's significant because the hearers of his day would have understood, okay, rider on a white horse is uh, like a Roman general who, who, who rides his white horse through the streets of Rome. And when people saw the white horse and, and the general leading his, his charge, they knew that there was victory. And we know that this rider on the white horse is going to have uh, his robe that's going to be dipped in blood. His eyes are going to be set, you know, like set on fire, and, and out of his mouth are going to come words like a sword. And on his leg is going to be written on his thigh, king of kings and lord of lords. In other words, these are all symbolic things, so much so that no one is ever going to ask, hey, who's that guy? You ever heard about this guy, king of kings? Everyone's going to know he's king of kings, he's lord of lords. And everyone is going to tremble. And it's going to be a glorious day. And the whole world will know. And Paul is saying, I long, I I long, I know it's coming, and I'm longing for it. And that so convicts me because do I live with that same eagerness and belief? So often in the way that I respond to life situations, I don't live with that eagerness or expectation. That's why I need I need to hear Jesus constantly over and over again. I need to be reminded of these truths, and so do you. We need to have this eagerness and longing and and Do you really believe this? Is all like Are all your eggs placed in this basket? And you can tell by the way you live your life now. Because so if you believe this, the grace of God will propel you to live in such a way now. Fourteen. Paul writes, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, Jesus saved us from the penalty of our sin. He's saving us from the power of sin. He will one day save us from the presence of sin. And he's also going to save us from the possession of sin. Jesus gave himself for us. I recently saw a movie with my family. Um, It's actually a Korean film that's available on Netflix, if any of you have that subscription. It's called Masquerade. And in this movie, um, it's about this paranoid king who had multiple assassination attempts on his life. And, um, you know, he desires that, you know, his counsel, he says, hey, you guys find me a double, you know, and they end up finding him a double that will stand in his place so he could have a little relief on these, you know, assassination attacks. And this double happens to be like a comedian, an actor, and looks exactly like him because it's the same actor playing both both parts, right? Pretty clever. Save money, too. You just need one actor, right? Um, But the interesting thing is the king ends up being poisoned, and the double has to stand in for the king. During this, uh, during this time in which he's poisoned and almost in this comatose state. And this is where the movie shines. This is where it's like just, just brilliant because the double is much different than this king. This, the double, even though he initially um, you know, is this actor who just wants to do this for the money, he begins to change. And he begins to develop this compassion for his people of all classes, whether they were high in class, middle class, low class. You just see this king who genuinely loves his people. And it begins to change the hearts of people because we all know we have that deep longing. This is is how a king should live, a king for his people. And Paul is telling us that this, this king, the greatest king, Jesus, is the way he lives his life. This is the king that Mark tells us that he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is King Jesus. It's a king who redeemed us from all lawlessness, all of our rebellion and sin. I don't know if you've ever had a glimpse of your own sin. It's our sin that put Jesus on the cross. It's our sin that caused the murdering of the innocent Son of God. It's our rejection and our rebellion. And we are not to merely focus on our sin, but as we focus on on Jesus and on the cross and what he's done, it gives light to our sin and our rebellion. And it reminds us of, man, where where exactly did Jesus save us from? Despair, wretchedness, self-centeredness, and ultimately the wrath of God. You see, this word redeem that Paul uses refers to the releasing of someone held captive, such as a prisoner or a slave, on receipt of a ransom payment. Jesus has redeemed us from all lawlessness. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. How did Jesus give up himself? By the giving up of his life. That is the king we serve. That is the king we worship. Jesus rescues us from our bondage, slavery, deception, and despair. And he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he calls us into purity and holiness. He calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And when he rescues us, he gives us a new identity. That's that imputed righteousness. And I know that I've mentioned it before, but when you look at the baptism of Jesus, you see a beautiful thing. You see Jesus, the Son of God, coming up out of the water. You see the Spirit of God descending upon Him, and you see, and you hear, I'm sorry, you hear the voice from heaven from the Father saying, this is my Son whom I love, and I'm well pleased. And if His righteousness has been given to us, the same is spoken of us as well. We've been given this new identity, not because of anything we have done, but solely because of what Jesus has done. And then we move from being a possession and slave of sin and self, to being a possession and slave of Jesus Christ. And I believe that this is where the rubber really meets the road. This is where it's most challenging. This is where, uh, this is the brewing battle within between the flesh and the spirit, between the old man, all right, that is passing away, and the new man that is being created. Now Paul captures this in Galatians five, where he talks about. He talks about this inner dynamic of, of, of the battle between the spirit and the flesh. You know, the spirit desires this, the flesh desires this, and they are opposed to one another, and there's a war. And there's a, I feel like a, sometimes like, you know, when I, uh, when I watch movies, I hope you guys all know that, that most movies are communicating a worldview. Like directors, they, like they know what they're doing. I mean, you know, like film is powerful. So all these films like, you know, communicate a worldview. So when you do watch a film, like, keep keep your theological uh, filter on. But I remember uh, watching this movie called Inception, which is a really interesting movie. But the main character, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, he begins to, um, they, they basically um, enter people's subconscious to, to hijack information. They figured a way to do that. And uh, they have this heist that they have to pull off and um, he, needs, he needs someone to begin to design reality in the subconscious. I know this sounds crazy, but he, he, ha- he finds this new architect and he has her enter her subconscious because he wants to train her how to, you know, how do you, how, do you, how do you alter perception of reality? And he gives her some tips and she begins forming a way and forming new realities. And then he says something very interesting. He, he warns her to stop changing things because his subconscious is becoming suspect of all the changes. In other words, their perception of reality was being altered and the subconscious started to attack the foreign object. I just thought that, man, the capture, just that, you know, I'm not saying this is how exactly how the spirit and flesh work, but it just captures that, that once, you know, we, we do have this spirit and flesh and they're, they're waging war. I mean, they're just foreign things like, and they're, they're waging, they're waging war on one another. And we, we feel that, right? How many of you have, have ever like had a difficult decision you've had to make? Where you know, man, you know, like this is, this is what the Lord would have you do, but you also had this other pull that was saying, man, why don't you, why don't you do this to benefit yourself or, or whatever it would be. And there's that conflict that we have in all of us. But brothers and sisters, even though we are justified, it's a declared fact, it's an event, it's done, we are declared righteous, we are now being sanctified. It's this process, it's the process of life change, and life change can be painful. And life change is often resisted on our part. Even though we've been crucified with Christ, we still deal deal with sin. We have the flesh. And like I said, the flesh and spirit are against each other. And the sad part is this. Many Christians underestimate the presence and power of indwelling sin. Not grasping that there is a war waging within the heart of every single believer. Within us is, is this righteous uh, you know, this self-righteous, you know, attorney that is always looking out for number one. And within us all, there's that other person that is saying, let's just give license to sin. And not aware, we're not often aware of how prone we are to wander after God replacements. We often fail to see that the greatest problems exist within us and not without. Paul David Tripp and Timothy Lane, in their book, How People Change, they explain, they talk about this gospel gap that that people often live in. And they say that when we live in this gospel gap, it tends to develop three types of blindness. And the first one, the first type of blindness is blindness to identity. And for many Christians, there is this forgetfulness of a gospel perspective on identity. As Paul does here, he gives us a negative and a positive view of our identity. We we tend to forget these views. Like for example, Called, called out of darkness and into light there's like a, a negative and a positive and we tend to forget both we tend to forget the negative that there is an in, internal war waging we forget our lawlessness and despair on the negative side and on the flip side we forget that he's called us into light we we forget that G, we forget everything that Jesus has rescued from us from and all in all we just forget how prone you and i are easily like how how prone we are to wander Of course, on the flip side, we forget that Jesus not only forgives me and gives me a a new future, he also gives me a whole identity right now. For example, if you're in Christ, you are literally a child of God right now, and this is a new identity. And all of us are living out some sort of identity, but the sad reality is that many of us sometimes live with what's called gospel amnesia. We forget who we are. Sometimes you and I live as functional atheists. We profess to believe that there is a God, but yet by the way we carry ourselves and the decisions we make, we act as though there is no God. So all of us suffers, right? no one is exempt. We all suffer from some form of gospel amnesia and oftentimes we forget who we are in Christ. And you look at some of these key passages in the Scripture, like Romans eight fifteen mentions that we're sons and daughters of God. In verse 17, Paul says that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. First Corinthians six seventeen, we're united with Jesus so that we literally become one with Him. We are henceforth in Christ, as Galatians 3.27 tells us, and He is in us, as Colossians 1.27 tells us. And this identity concept is powerful. Because often in our blindness, we in our blindness we take on our problems as identities. Like, for example, divorce, depression. Uh, marital status like singleness, and and you name it. These are all significant human experiences, but they are not identities. Those are not who we are. And of course, for others, our sense of identity is rooted more in our performance than in the grace of God. I think one movie that really powerfully captures this concept of identity is a movie called Blood Diamond. And it refers to the Blood Diamond's... uh, mined in uh, African war zones and sold to finance conflicts and and profit the warlords and diamond companies around the world. And it's in this, in real life, that young boys are, are kidnapped, brainwashed, and forced to serve these warlords who are bent on harvesting diamonds to fund their war efforts. And in this movie, Blood Diamond, the main character's son was kidnapped and forced to do terrible things, and it's really the the story is about this father doing everything he can to find his son. I mean, he goes out of his way, risks his life, and he and he and he finally finds his son and reunites with his son. And there's a scene in which uh, <clears throat> the father and uh, um, the son is with him. They have taken down a bad guy, and the son pulls a gun on the father just because he's confused, like he, he he's just. He's been through this terrible, traumatic experience, and he points the gun at his father. And the father looks at him, and he begins talking, begins reminding him, this is where you're from. Your mother is waiting for you. Your, uh, you know, the, the, the cows are waiting for you. Your dog is waiting for you. We love you. This is, and then he says something very profound. He looks at him with tears in his eyes, and he says, I am your father who loves you, and you will come home with me, and you will be my son again. And it's so powerful because, because I can see that in my own life and, I, and, I, and I, I think you can see that in your own life as we search for things and we search for identities or we dive into the world and sometimes we forget who we are and we have this father who is relentlessly pursuing us and who is grabbing us and say, I am your father. Remind us of who he is and he reminds us of who we are and you are my son and you are my daughter and you're going to come home with me. This is not who you are. These terrible things that you've done, that's not who you are. You are my son. You are my daughter. This identity concept is so powerful. And it's grounded in Jesus being the ultimate son. So we see that there's blindness to, God, to identity. The second thing we see is that when we live in the gospel gap, there's blindness to God's provision. Again, again, Paul, speaking here in uh, Titus 2, he's talking about the here and now, how the grace of Jesus trains us in the present age. And what is the provision? What has God provided us to live in this present age? It's a Sunday school answer, brothers and sisters. Jesus! Paul clearly understood that. Don't you love that whatever like letters you read of Paul, whether it's early letters... Middle, le- middle letters, later letters, it's all Jesus. <laughs> it's never like, "Hey, you guys graduated from Jesus, now move on to works, or move on to like, just being self-centered or, or living life with your own power. It's always Jesus. So much so that in Galatians 2:20 he says, "I've been crucified with Christ." It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. You see, the provision is Jesus. But when we live in that gospel gap, we forget. We forget that Jesus is the provision, and we begin looking for other things. Maybe something else is the answer. Maybe it's uh, this, this teaching or this philosophy, or maybe it's this person, or maybe it's work or money or whatever. And we forget that no, Jesus is the answer always and forever. It also, the last thing is, it also blinds us to God's process. Because when you and I live in the gospel gap, we tend to forget Romans eight twenty nine. We tend to forget that we're predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus. We forget that life is a process and that everything that is happening to us, God is using to mold and form us into the image of his son, and that is both good and bad. And the fact is this, God will do whatever it takes in our lives to make that happen. And that's hard, because oftentimes the context for that is the crucible of life. Tripp and Lane explain, anytime we find ourselves in difficulty or trial, it's easy to think that we've been forgotten or rejected by God. This is because we don't understand the present process. God is not working for our comfort and ease. He's working on our growth. And at the very moment we're tempted to question his faithfulness, he's fulfilling his redemptive promises to us. After all, it's not like there are only some people who really need to change. Change is a norm for everyone, and God is always at work to complete this process in us. Can have the praise team come up as we close? Brothers and sisters, do you see this reality of the gospel gap in your life? As I look at Titus chapter 2 and I look at the whole book of Titus, what I see is this is the seedbed, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a seedbed in which the believers in the island of Crete are to live in. It's to empower everything that they do. It's to empower. It empowers Paul the Apostle, all right, who is a servant of Jesus Christ, a bondslave of Jesus It's to empower Elder Titus to say, this is how you are to shepherd. You are to model your leadership and your shepherding after the great and good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Who is also going to be one who is going to protect his sheep from false teachers. And the gospel is to propel the way you live your lives in the city as older men, younger men, older women, and younger women. So much so that you see little hints like in Titus 2, verse 5, and verse 8, and verse 10. Where, where, where Paul writes to Titus that the word of God may not be reviled. That's verse 5 and verse 8. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. See, Christians are to live gospel-centered lives so that, so that they will not be reviled, so that the name of God will not be reviled. How many people in this world, how many friends do you have that have a negative light on the church because they had some negative experience with the Christian? I remember uh, uh, this friend of mine who was an atheist and says, man, you know, your people give you a bad testimony. I remember being ripped off by a Christian car salesman, lied to by a Christian realtor who claimed it, you know, who had a little fish, you know, thing. And, and we've had a lot of interesting talks. But there's a reason why Paul says this is how the gospel propels you to live in a society that is broken. It empowers you to live in this way so that the word of God may not be reviled, so that no shame will be spoken. And then in verse 10, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What the gospel does is it changes us and transforms us. That so when we live in the culture, whether it's Crete or whether it's Anchorage or Los Angeles or whatever city, that people will adorn they will treasure it, like it would be attractive to them, that people will adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. So, brothers and sisters, I pray that wherever you're at in life right now, whether you have already placed your trust in Christ or or not, Jesus is the answer. If, if you haven't placed your trust in Christ, He is the answer for you, for the forgiveness of sins and, 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 and a new life in the here and now. For those of you that are struggling, that are in Christ, he is the answer for you. For those of you that are seasoned in your faith and have been following him for so many years, he is still the answer. And I pray that we would just come to him and that we would believe that he alone empowers us to live faithful lives now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for sending your son, who we call Emmanuel, God with us. We have a God who never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And he's going to see this process through of conforming us to the image of his son. And Lord, there is no obstacle too big for you. No sin too great for you to overcome. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us a glimpse of your glory. Help us to see you for who you are. Father, I know that the more that I focus on your love and grace versus even just my sin and what I bring to the table or even my own works, Lord, there's a radical difference. That when I focus on the grace of Jesus, it gives light to everything else. It gives light to sin. It gives light to to legalism in my own life. It gives light to even the the fact that uh, I can have a license to sin mentality. It just gives light to everything. I pray that we would be a people that believe that the gospel touches every area of our lives, our marriages, our, our singleness, our places of work, our schools. And Lord, I pray that um, I pray that we would trust that you are the answer for everything. Lord Jesus, we desire to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior. And help us to do that. I pray, that um, I pray for those that are going through a difficult time right now. I pray that they would not give into any of the lies the enemy presents them. But instead, I pray they would just cling to you, Jesus. Because I know that there are people struggling here today. And I just pray that they would just cling to you. Father, I pray for those that have been following you even for extended time, Lord. I pray that uh, in their following, that their heart would always be soft and humble. I'm just always reminded of the words, last words of John Newton. Newton. Uh, Two things he knew at the end of his life, that he's a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. So I just pray that we would remember that, Lord. Thank you for your patience in our lives. Thank you for your grace that is... that is just amazing, Lord. And thank you that you are a God that pursues us relentlessly, that you do grab us and you do remind us of who we are. And Lord, I pray that if, uh, for those that are struggling with identity, I pray that you would grip a hold of them through Jesus and you would shake them and remind them that you are a good father, you're their father, and that they are your son and your daughter and you've called them to go home with you. Thank you again, Father. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.